Good morning. Uh, Val and I have been excited about this weekend ever since the date got put in the diary. Uh, we've been looking forward to it. And uh, it just shows how much Kings means to us that for the weekend we've left the sun and the sea and the sand, uh, the beauty of the new forests, the magnificence of the Purbex with the rolling hills and quiet beaches and impressive cliffs. And my one consolation is that they'll still be there tomorrow when I go home. <laughs> uh, but seriously, I hope you all know uh, that the reason that the only reason that Val and I moved when we did is that we felt God's call. Um, and although we've made lots of new friends and our move has gone extremely well, uh, Kings will always be special to us uh, wherever we are. So that's why it's a delight to be here and to share God's word with you. So uh, you're starting a new series on 2 Corinthians and um, it's going to be challenging. I'm glad you're up for a challenge. 12 weeks on this magnificent book. Just to tell you, uh, give you a taster of the sort of stretch that it might involve you in. Uh, Paul wrote more than two letters to the Corinthians of which we only have two. Did you know that? Um, so really our 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is really 4 Corinthians. And it really doesn't make a lot of difference, but I know some of you are a bit geeky and you like that sort of information. So I thought I'd just throw that in and to show that I've read the books about 2 Corinthians. The theme of the series is power in weakness. And that truth, the truth of this book, confronts two lies, two powerful lies that affected the Corinthians and still seduces Christians today. But before... I expose what those lies are. Let's start reading in this letter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, Paul starts like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our, all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves has received. Before we read any more, uh, for the geography buffs, here's a map and the arrow's pointing to Corinth. That's the city. It was a cosmopolitan major city in the ancient world. And uh, I want to give you a warning before I read you any more of this letter. If you want to give the impression that the Christian life is easy and there's a problem-free existence for anyone who learns the spiritual secret of success, then this book will be a real shock to you. If you think you leave all your difficulties and struggles behind when you turn to follow Christ, stop listening now and take a break from church for a couple of months. This letter will destroy any ideas you might have about painless discipleship or superficial religion or a lukewarm spirituality. But if you want to wake up the sleepy, if you want to challenge the apathetic, if you want to bring comfort and strength to the committed, this letter is for you. It's strong tonic and it will do you good. We don't follow Christ because it's easy. We follow him because he is the truth. 
We don't choose the path of discipleship because it is pain-free. We choose it because we learn that every difficulty we face, every hardship we bear because we are disciples of Christ, are achieving for us, this is what Paul writes in this letter, are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. So that when we stand before him, anything we have faced now, no matter how hard, will then seem a slight momentary affliction. Follow Christ not because it's the easy road, but it is the only road to satisfying that deep longing that every human heart has to give their life for something of eternal value and significance. So let's dive into 2 Corinthians. Be ready to think hard, for the situation is complex and the issues are crucial. So we're going to read some more verses from the opening of this great letter. So 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5. And listen carefully. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope is for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you will share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the, to the prayers of many. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationships with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand, and I hope that as you have understood in part, you will come to understand fully, that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. What are the two powerful lies that this book confronts? The first lie is this. The Christian life should be easy and straightforward. It's not. That Christian leaders should be outwardly impressive. They should not. Did you notice it says, Paul says, the sufferings of Christ flow over, overflow into our lives. And he's saying that not just as an apostle, it's not saying just so those special people. He says, and you share those sufferings too. Which doesn't sound like a great advert, doesn't it? Come and follow Christ and you will have hardships and trials. But Paul is not embarrassed to talk about his sufferings and trials. In fact, as we'll see, he boasts of them. And throughout this letter, you find the Christian life is tough. Uh, just one insight into that is just to track the record 
of Paul's relationship with this church. So I'm going to do this really quickly, so fast on safety belts. It's AD 49, Paul is towards the end of his second great missionary journey. Since the time he arrived in Greece, there has been hostility and apathy. Mainly hostility, occasionally apathy and indifference. When he gets to Corinth, he's really at the end of his resources. He's thinking about he needs some R&R and go back home. But he turns up in Corinth and the same old trouble quickly starts again. He is kicked out of the synagogue for preaching Jesus. Just as he'd been kicked out in many other cities. And there's a threat of violence and difficulty. And he's thinking of going home, of catching the boat and going home. The only thing that keeps him in Corinth is that God awakens him in the night with a vision and says, Paul, I am with you and I have many people in this city. So Paul stays for 18 months. And the most remarkable thing, out of the most unlikely human resources, a Christian community starts being formed. People coming to faith. And in that community, they're showing a sort of death-defying life. They're showing a different way of living. Paul could write of that church, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things. And the despised things, and the things are not that are not. He's talking about them. You were the despised, you were the weak, you were the vulnerable. No one took any notice of you, but God chose you. And now you're showing what God can do with people like you. So when he leaves Corinth, he's in good heart. And uh, if you were doing a sort of feel-good movie, that's where you would leave the story. It was a bit difficult at the start, People had felt like quitting, but he didn't quit. He built a Christian community, and then he sailed off into the sea, and everything went smoothly after that. But the Christian life and building God-honoring communities is more like a soap opera at times than it is a feel-good movie. So what happens? Sometime later, Paul hears, gets a report that some people in that church that he had spent 18 months with, people that he had won to Christ, who had left an old way of life some of them have gone back into sexual immorality and so quickly he dashes off a letter that's one of the letters we haven't got but he dashes off a letter hoping that would get them back on track but the next news he gets things have got even worse there was even more immorality the letter didn't have the effect he he wanted in fact uh, for some of them they totally misunderstood it he finds out that There's drunkenness when they have the Lord's Supper together. There is quarreling. Different groups in the church are sort of clustering around different preachers they have. And there's like, almost like rival football teams. You know, I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos. They're confused about Christian teaching. They're confused in their lifestyle. It's a mess. Some of them are taking each other to court. So Paul writes them another letter. That's our first Corinthians. That's what we've got. The letter he writes after that second lot of bad news. And he sends Timothy with the letter. Maybe the letter, he can't get there. Maybe the letter with Timothy, he can help them sort it out. But when he hears back, the situation is still bad. The letter and Timothy's present doesn't sort it. So he he drops his plans and he goes straight to Corinth. 
Maybe if I get there, the people that have come to Christ through me, maybe I could help them, maybe sort them out, put them back on the right track. Do you know what? When he gets there, it seems to make matters worse. There are some people in the church that stand up to Paul. They sort of seem to despise him and try to humiliate him. They confront him. They won't listen to him. They won't accept his teaching. And it gets to such an extreme point that Paul thinks it's better to leave them for a while, to give them a chance to simmer down. And then he writes what was his third letter. That's the second letter that we don't have. And he writes the letter and he says, with great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. That's how he writes this letter. He's hoping that now they've had a bit of time to think and now he's not there and, and somehow that caused them difficulties. They will listen more carefully and think more deeply about what he says in this letter. And now he's waiting. If you want to feel some of the emotion of turmoil, imagine being a parent of a beautiful young daughter who's gone off to university in another country. And when she left you, your relationship with her was fantastic and she was loving, she was godly, she was doing all the right things and she went to this other nation but you check Facebook and you see the things she's saying to her friends and you have your Skype calls or whatever with her and she's not looking good. And it gets worse and worse and worse and you realise she's in with a group of people that are really doing her no good. And it looks like she's going to shipwreck her face. It looks like she could really mess up the rest of her life. And so you jump on a plane and you fly out to try and see her. And instead of that sorting it out, it seems to make things worse. And it gets to such a pitch, you think, if I stay any longer, we might say and do things that will ruin this relationship. So I'm going to move away. And you get on the plane to fly home with tears. And on the plane, you write another letter. You think, maybe this will sort it. But you don't know because it's got so bad. It's got so bad. So you get home, you send the letter, you're praying like mad that it would work. And you find that a family friend is going to go and visit that city. And you say, when you're over there, can you go and visit her? You're hoping that the letter, she might have seen sense. And so you wait for your friend to come back. This is exactly the sort of mood that Paul is in just before he writes to Corinthians. Because Titus is coming back. He's waiting in hope and longing and fear. And it's not comfortable where he's waiting. He's waiting, first of all, in Ephesus. And it would be nice if in Ephesus everything was going smoothly, but it isn't. That's where he writes about in, that we read. While he was in Ephesus, in Asia, he was suffering hardships. There was great pressure beyond his ability to endure. He says, we even despaired of life. We felt under sentence of death. So he's worried about Corinth, but he's having acute problems in Ephesus. But he's so wanting news about Corinth that he knows Titus's route on his way home. So he starts off on the journey from the other end. So he might meet Titus sooner. He might get the news sooner. And then they meet up. Imagine that you're that parent, the friend that's come back from the other side of the ocean. And you're waiting and you know they've drawn up in the car outside. They've got news. You don't know what it is, but you know they've got news about your daughter. And when they walk in the front door, they smile. That letter really did it. She saw how much you loved her, and she saw the sense in what you're saying. She's putting her relationships right. She's getting back on track spiritually. 
it's good news. Well, that's what sort of happened when Titus arrived back to Paul. He had good news. Paul, after all that heartache, all that prayer, all that effort, they're beginning to see sense. And they want to honor you and thank you for your fatherly care. And the first nine chapters of 2 Corinthians are written with that spirit, that tone, that sort of sigh of relief. That they've listened and they're sorting things out. In a moment I'll tell you what happened for the last few chapters. But that's the mood of that first part. And it's worth just stopping at this point and thinking, well, what does that have to say to us? Well, you can't know about Paul and think the Christian life is easy. You know, if you're passionate about people, if you're passionate about building a church that is God-honoring, then it's hard work. It's not success when someone comes to Christ. That's the beginning. But it's not the end of the journey. It's the beginning of a journey. And the journey is often a hard journey. It's not, you've not finished when you've just established a church. You're trying to build a community that reflects Christ. That doesn't happen automatically. It takes a lot of effort. You see, one of the dangers in a big church, in a thriving church, is that someone might make a professional faith. They might get baptized and then they drift off. Their lifestyle goes out of whack. They might stop attending so often. And here's the danger. The danger is you go, well, you win some, you lose some. Easy come, easy go. There's lots more people. We can go and reach them. Actually trying to rescue them and help them. Well, they've made their own decision. We just let them go. If Paul had felt like that, he wouldn't have written all the letters to Corinth. He wouldn't have dropped everything and gone across the ocean to meet them. He wouldn't have put up with the heartache and the pain. But Paul, with everyone he he tried to win to Christ. To every church he tried to plant, he had this attitude, I'm not going to give up and I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going Because he wanted to reflect the patience and the persistence of God. And you know what? The Christian life is hard. And, you know, sometimes I don't... I look at Paul and I think, oh yes, this is a great example. Sometimes I don't feel like Paul. I feel like the Corinthians. I've messed up again. I'm in a mess again. I've got it wrong again. Do you know what I need to be? I need to be in a community. You need to be in a community that will not give up on you. You won't just say, no, he ran well for a while, but he's gone. But they would at times get in your face because they will not give up on you because God will not give up on you. And they won't give in to you. This won't be, as long as you turn up at church, I don't mind, you know, don't matter what's happening in your life because God's holiness and his love for us demands the best from us and for us. We have to build, up, build communities that don't give up and don't give in. And in that way, we can build these communities that show the world there's another way to live. A worthwhile way to live. A, to live a life that lasts beyond this life and into eternity. That makes an eternal difference. Have you got relationships like that? Are you building relationships like that? We need them. And we need churches filled with people like that. And it will give you the greatest heartache at times and the deepest joy. That's what it did for Paul. The Christian life is not easy and straightforward, but it's worth it. It's worth it.
Second lie. Christian leaders should be outwardly impressive. Don't be seduced by that lie. Don't judge Christian leaders by worldly standards. If chapters 1 to 9 is this sigh of relief, something as dramatic has happened by the time he starts to write chapter 10. And it looks like what happened. He didn't write this letter in a day. He didn't do it in an afternoon just to scribble it off. This letter had been poured over, prayed over, thought through. It had been a number of days. It might have been even a few weeks before he finally sent, was about to send the letter. He probably got to the end of chapter 9 and thought, I'll just put a nice ending on here and send it off, encourage them. And at that point, he gets news that some false teachers had swept into town. And do you know what they were saying? What are you doing? You're starting to change everything again. You're listening to Paul. Why would you want to listen to Paul? I mean, he's not that impressive. He writes an impressive letter, grant you. But what happened last time he came? Some of you had some problems. You raised some issue with, with Paul. And what did he do? He ran away. You call that leadership? He just got out of town. That's a bit cowardly, isn't it? You don't want to listen to Paul. And, okay, yeah, writing he's good at. But when he's here, it's not the best speaking, is it? Doesn't always, like, not like us. We can really speak well. And what about this? This thing, you know, this thing, he, don't, he never asks for money. He never asks for support. You know, every other sort of leader going around the world is asking for support. Whether the philosophers or a Christian leader, they get support. You know why Paul doesn't ask for support? Because he knows you don't think he's worth it. He doesn't want you to be, get embarrassed and you go, do you expect us to support your ministry? God. You know he's not worth it. And surely someone who says he's Christ's apostle, who proclaims that Christ is king of kings and has victory over death and the devil, surely their life shouldn't be marked out with such suffering and trial. But he's arrested everywhere he goes. He gets stoned, he gets beaten up. Do you want to follow a person like that? You want to follow someone a bit more impressive than that, don't you? You listening to him? Don't listen to him. That's what they're saying. <laughs> you, you watch. When you get to chapters 10, it suddenly changes and Paul becomes really strong because he's addressing that issue. He's really concerned that this church is now starting getting back on track, is going to be led astray again, and he doesn't want that to happen to his spiritual children. So watch out when you get there. These people have swept into town with their letters of recommendation, their rave reviews. They've got a compact, like an ancient publicity campaign. We're, they're the real deal, these guys. They are impressive speakers. They, you put them on a stage, you, they sway a crowd. They boast of their visions and their miracles. They're always trumpeting about what they can do. There's a sort of celebrity aura about them and Weak, you'd never think these people were weak. I mean, they're big, like the big men about the church. Sometimes they might be a bit harsh, they might be a bit like a bully, but that's what you expect of leaders, isn't it? Surely. And suffer, they suffer all the way to the bank as they carry the loads of money. Their lives look like victorious. They look like lives that are not pain, painful at all. That's what these guys were like. These super apostles. Do you know what? It's not just in Corinth that that happens. It wasn't just in other churches of the ancient world. 
It's not just another part of the world or another time in history. It happens today. And there is much on Christian radio and Christian TV that is great. But some of it is like this. Watch out for people who are always asking for money. Watch out for people who are always asking for money. Who parrot on about their visions and their miracles. Who, who don't display any weakness. And in fact, they tell you there's a secret. If only you buy their book or pray their prayer or whatever, then you can live a life of always success and trouble-free. And that's what the Christian life is supposed to be. That is a lie. Don't listen to them. Be careful who you listen to. And you should listen most to the people that you know well. That's why it's important to be in part of a church and not just watch church on TV. That you can see your leaders. And you see them especially in the tough times. Because that's where faith is proved. Christian leaders should not be known because they're outwardly impressive. Paul gives us other criteria. Paul could have boasted of visions and miracles, but he doesn't. That's not the thing he emphasizes. Let me tell you the three things he emphasizes. One, he, <coughs> he emphasizes this. He said, the real test of a spiritual leadership is not letters of recommendation. is the fruit of spiritual life in you. Paul says, I don't need a letter to the Corinthians. I've got you. You are my spiritual letter of recommendation. Engraved by the Spirit, God changed your lives through my ministry. I'm your Father in Christ. Listen to me. The credentials a Christian leader needs is not rave letters or even letters after their name. That's unimportant. Does God do spiritual good through their lives and through their teaching? That's what counts. And you can only really know that if you can see their lives. That's what Paul says. And what's the style of a Christian leader, according to Paul? It's not to be bully. It's not to be the big man or the big person. The style is meekness and gentleness. That doesn't mean you're not strong. But there's a meekness and gentleness. Paul says... Meekness and gentleness is not weakness. Meekness and gentleness, gentleness is Christ-likeness. Follow people who are Christ-like. And if you're going to boast, Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses and I'm going to boast about you. Isn't that great? I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. Why boast? Why is the Christian life hard? Fortunately, it's not hard all the time. But why should hardship and difficulties not cause us to be surprised or shocked? Why is it just part of being a Christian? Well, Paul gives us some of the answers, and you'll see more of them as you go through this letter. But he gives us some of the answers in the reading that we had. In verse 9, he says this. This happened, all this difficulty happened, that we might rely not on ourselves, but on God. How does God use hardships? To get us rely on him. When do you rely most on God? In the easy times when everything's going smoothly? Isn't that the very times that we start to become independent? We start to think, oh, we got this thing cracked. Oh, I, I, yes, I'll, I'll sort of keep God there, but I don't really need him that much. But in the crisis time, when you're out of your depth, what do you do? You rely on him. And the most precious thing of all to God is people that rely on him. 
That's what trouble does to us. It helps us rely on God. And it's in the cauldron of difficulties that we receive something from God that gets us, keeps us going. We've, don't you experience the deepest intimacy and sense of reality of God in those moments? At points you feel, like, I can't bear this, I can't go on, and then God comes through and lifts you up. And out of that experience, you, you help others. Paul says, out of the comfort that we've received, we give comfort to others. When you know that Christ can keep you afloat in the midst of storms, then you can give that in faith to others. People don't need to know that there are some people in the world who don't have a problem and just waltz through life and it's easy. Because for most people, life's not like that. It's full of difficulties and trials and heartaches. What they need to know is that in the midst of that, there is something, somebody, that keep, can keep them pressing on. That can help them have victory in the midst of their pain and their heartache. When I was a youngster, I was on holiday in Ilfracombe. It was one of those lovely British summers when the sky was grey, the sea was grey, <laughs> the rain was pouring. It was so grey you couldn't see where the sea end and the sky started. And we were trying to find something to do by walking around the shops. And suddenly, in this stormy weather, we heard a rocket go off. It was like a whoosh, bang. And then, like a minute later, another one. And someone in our group said, that means the lifeboat's going out. And I don't know if it's still true, but that was one of the ways they would signal people to the lifeboat. So we weren't quite sure if that was true, but we thought, well, let's climb up the cliff and see. And we looked down on the lifeboat house and see if the lifeboat would go out. Actually, when we got there, there were lots of people who thought the same. And in this amazing storm, this little lifeboat charged into the sea and at moments the boat got swallowed by the waves and you people like collectively we held our breath because you couldn't see the boat anymore you thought it's gone out to rescue others but has it sunk and then after aching you know seconds minutes it would pop out of the out of the waves again and you would see it fly sometimes through the air and then hit another great wave and it would be knocked to and fro but it kept going it kept going it kept going The unstoppable power of God in our lives is like that. In the deepest trouble, in the strongest storms. It keeps us going. It keeps us afloat. It keeps us making progress. And that gives hope to anyone who finds life hard. Why does God allow us to go through trials? It's to display his power in us and through us. In those times, we learn more about ourselves and more about him. He gives us the resources to cope that we might share with others. That Christ's suffering overflows into our lives. That his comfort might overflow from our lives into the lives of others. And this is what Paul says later in the letter, chapter 4. We have this treasure, this gospel, this power of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He shows through the cracks in us, in our weaknesses. Towards the end of the letter, Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh. I'm not preaching then. I wonder, there's big debates about what, what that was. Just to let you know, I do think there's a good chance that this was physical disability or illness. But it's not key. But you know, Paul prays to God three times. He says, Lord, deliver me. Lord, deliver me. He knows God can deliver him from this thorn in the flesh. But after the third time, God says this, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power might rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulty. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you want to be strong in Christ? You will find it in your weakest moments when his power comes through to you. Paul's suffering was his way of embodying the cross of Christ. Listen to this quote. Suffering and endurance amid adversity with thanksgiving and contentment manifests the power of Jesus. Suffering and endurance in the midst of adversity with thanksgiving and contentment manifests the power of Jesus. For Paul, his suffering as an apostle was the very means that God used to reveal his glory. And it's how he reveals his glory in us, in our weakness and our frailty. But there's something that cannot get go, that will not let go. He boasts in his weakness, and he boasts in them. He looks forward to the day, he didn't note that, right at the end of our reading this morning. Uh, <coughs> he says... Um, just as we will boast of you in that day. Do you want to have something to be proud of when you face God? When all secrets are known, where all, everything is exposed, you want to have something to be proud of? Invest your life in building a godly Christian community. Because that thing will stand before God. Every effort you make to grow more like Christ and to help others to grow more like Christ. Every sacrifice you make to make this community something that radiates God's love and demonstrate his power is worth it. Because on that day when empires fade, when bank balances don't count for two hoots, on that day, all that you've done to build for God's glory will stand. And you will be rightly proud that in us and through us God has done that. It's interesting in these two great lies that the Christian life should be easy and straightforward and that Christian leaders should be impressive. If you look at the temptations of Christ, that's exactly the line of attack that the enemy brought to him. Not Jesus. There's stone. Turn it into bread. That would be easy. Look, Jesus, just worship me and then all the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. It's easy. It's straightforward. Worship me. Oh, and by the way, if you jump off the temple tower and the angels catch you, that would be pretty impressive, won't it? So you'll be an impressive leader. That's what you should be. Have an easy life and impress people. And, Pete, and Jesus said that is not God's way. And he took the road that went to the cross and he suffered and he was considered weak and feeble. But in him, when death had done its worst, was resurrection life. In that sacrifice, God's glory was revealed. In our sacrifice and our hardships, God's glory is revealed. And if you want to build something, build like this. It says in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him. For the joy of having people like us stand before his Father in heaven without blemish, cleansed, forgiven. For that joy, he suffered the cross. And he calls us to follow him, to pick up our crosses so that we will rejoice with him for the people that we have helped. 
to be there on that day, standing proud before God, their maker and saviour. There's power in weakness. Embrace it. And I'm going to finish with this. The final words in 2 Corinthians, right at the end of the whole letter, he says this. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Evermore. Amen. Amen.